So good morning everybody, welcome to what is like a seventh academic archers uh, Saturday on the bus. <laughs> Who thought that was going to happen when we started this? It seems like another while, doesn't it still? Um, we have two papers for you this morning, two absolutely brilliant papers that I'm from this morning. Uh, let me just meet um, uh, we'll do as ever, one paper, then Q&A, the next paper, then a Q&A. Um, all of you are muted now, and if you can stay on mute throughout as well, because seriously, any little tiny bit of background noise is picked up and echoes through all of our, our laptops and machines, whatever we're using. If you want to make a comment, the chat is there as ever, and there's also a function in there for you to put your hand up. It's called hand up, so you can do that, and that will mean that you're you're wanting to ask a question will flash up to me on my screen so I'll be able to see you and get to you fairly quickly and then Nicola and I will try our best to go through all of the chat but you do go through it at quite a pace uh, and it is all hilarious and we forgive the clue to all but there we go so again as, as ever the uh, two people presenting will share their screens with us you don't need to do anything it doesn't change anything on your laptop or phone or whatever you're using to, to join us with but it will just mean that we can see their slides as they go through it so, without further ado, let's uh, go to Nicola for her introduction to our first paper. As I say, I got like, hello everybody, I got a bit excited this morning and on about the nature of reality, which as you know, can keep me entertained for a long time. But anyway, I will restrict my remarks to the, uh, to the very merest uh, existential uh, stuff. Right. As Cara said, we've got two excellent papers this morning, first from Lincoln and the second from Bronwyn. I couldn't remember which, year. was that this year at um, Reading? Anyway, so this time there wasn't quite so much sobbing because there was less dead pets and more older people. And one thing that I wanted to put out there as a discussion point was how we've watched the narrative around older people morphing in the cauldron of this crisis towards what I think is the most unsettling and utilitarian notion of older people I've known in my lifetime. So from kind of your grannies and granddads and war heroes to um, pre-existing medical conditions, vulnerable adults, all this sort of seeming, anyway, we'll come back to that. First, however, some, is somebody not muted? Because I can hear weirdness, hang on. I can hear birdies and stuff. Abby's birdies. Oh well, anyway. Right. Sorry, back to my notes. One sec. So, first, however, some associated noodling on my part about the nature of memory in and of Ambridge as an intro to Jessica's paper, as it fits with ideas about the official and unofficial readings of the past. Memory is, of course, closely associated with the nature of reality. After all, to be able to recall something, you need to believe that it is indeed real. So I was looking at some papers in cognitive science and it says, memory is the faculty of the brain by which data or info is encoded, stored and retrieved when needed. It is the retention of information over time for the purpose of influencing future action. However, I would argue that the archers is an active exercise in collective remembering. And this links us to what we've been talking about in the space of fandom practices, as we were led through them last week by the brilliant Helen Burroughs. So much of the very enjoyable discursive space around the arches is centered on the tensions between reality as broadcast, reality as understood, and reality as remembered. 
And in other fandoms, it's a very rich vein of form around what is canon. So don't get the um, Star Trek people on whether the uh, Star Star Wars people on whether the novels are canon or the films. So and just just to say a word about this, this has obviously been brought. So so it used to be that the sort of Western literary canon was a big deal for literate, literature scholars, and it would be like, oh, is Charlotte Bronte in or out? Oh, is Jane Austen in or out? Because canon was viewed as some sort of sort of you know curated list of what was important. So canon in the context of fa fandom, it's a source or sources considered authoritative by the fanish community. In other words. Canon is what fans agree actually happened in a film, television show, novel, comic book, or concert tour. And specific sources considered canon might vary within a specific fandom. So then even the black and white ontological question of what exists sits in an intrinsically gray area for the archers. You remember um, Maggie's brilliant paper at Reading that we all found so hilarious, exactly exploiting this point, because what exists um, is vexed question. And you might remember that when we were planning the um, the British Library um, conference, I managed to spend some time with the British Library curators of spoken word about the different technologies on which the archers has been broadcast and therefore the availability of archive on the archers. Now, um, what, what has all this got to do with war memorials? Well, I will tell you because in some ways, the basis of something to remember can then become weaponized as they become ingredients of our national story. And I think that a lot of the kind of, you know, the very partial notion of people's war experience or war service somehow becomes canonized into acts of collective remembering and ritual and all the rest of it. So it's very interesting in terms of culture. So I just wanted very quickly to say that the, the there, are, there are shades of gray in the archer's canon and there's a hierarchy in play. So at the top, there's episodes in recorded form. Then there's archive, the archive, which is built up. Then there's scripts, topical inserts. So Tim recently um, went through the archive of the scripts as a research method. There's lost scripts. Kerry's tweeted recently about his lost May. There's marginalia, which is the notes of script meetings not that didn't get developed. Then there's the categories of fanalysis, fan analysis. So Dumpty Dum, the Ambridge Observer, basically academic archers is very much in this space where rumour and speculation are rife, imputing motives and predicting plots. And then there's fan fiction. Again, Helen Burroughs reading out um, an alternative um, script. So as I say, in the context of the reruns that we're currently experiencing, there is a fourth wall shattering rupture in the time-space continuum of the program. So anyway, and, and, and then that obviously all of this links to the point I made about how, how the past becomes weaponized as kind of propaganda in the ingredients of our national story. And you can see this very clearly when you think about how Brexit Britain is, up, is, is conjuring up a, a set of historical facts for another purpose, but uh, there's nothing neutral about any of that. Jessica, I hope all of that sheds some light on your work on the archers as a lieu de memoir of the First World War. If not, just, you know, just uh, start where you want to start. Uh, thanks very much, Nicola. It actually does pick up some of the stuff that I'll be talking about right at the end. I'm going to try and share my screen. Um, I'm having some problems um, sharing this as a slideshow. Um, 
so I don't know. Yeah, I can't. The problem is I can't see my notes while I share the slide show. So if you don't mind, I'll leave it with the um, with the slides on the side, and I'll run through it that way. So apologies for that. Um, so yes, as mentioned, I originally gave this paper in Lincoln in 2017, which was partway through the centenary of commemorations of the First World War. For those who haven't uh, heard me speak before, I am an associate professor of uh, modern British history at the University of Leeds, specializing in the history of gender, medicine, and warfare, but also with a strong um, element of the uh, memory and legacy of the First World War, and this paper fits into that portion of my work. So in this paper, I originally located the way in which the archers commemorated the outbreak of the war in 2014 within the British government's political program of commemoration um, and the BBC's related series of programs and events, uh, principally the World War I at Home uh, project. I did uh, this bit of uh, theoretical location using theories and methods from the history of memory, principally Pierre Nora's concept of lieu de mémoire or sites of memory, which have been very influential in the history of memory in the First World War. And lieu de mémoire defined as any significant uh, entity, whether material or non-material in nature, which by dint of human will or the work of time has become a symbolic element of the memorial heritage of any community. Um, so here you've got Lochnagar Crater, um, which is, is um, um, both of these I suggest are the other by dint of human will and that they are both man-made essentially, um, if, even if one looks slightly more uh, natural than the other. So not all sites of memory are created equal. Those which involve official narratives in the structuring of sites of memory can result in homogenization of memory into what Eric Hobsbawm and Theo Ranger defined as invented traditions, that is, histories and rituals created to impose and enforce hegemonic structures of power on the, way, the communities which are being remembered and which are remembering. So in this theoretical context, the archers has a potential to be both a lieu de memoir um, as I'd suggest this entire community of the academic archers bears witness to, but also given the Reithian underpinnings of the program as a vector for educating audiences about rural life in Britain after the Second World War, it also has the potential to be an invented tradition. In looking specifically at how the program commemorated the First World War, I argued that it functions in both ways. So the first example of the program as a Lea de Memoir, I argued, was the recurring theme of Remembrance Sunday, which was marked uh, by, in many years by a church service at St. Stephen's. Uh, so most years, this forms the primary marking of Remembrance, either on Armistice Day or Remembrance Sunday. They don't always match up. They did um, in 2018, but a lot of times they don't. Um, and the archers tends to only commemorate one or the other, usually uh, Remembrance Sunday. And it doesn't occur every year. There isn't always uh, a marking of the service in the program. And the intensity of commemorative practice varies over the year. Thus, in 1996, the minute silence was actually marked in the program. Uh, while in 2007, Nigel spoke during the service about his great uncle Rupert's grave at Ypres. So that was an interesting year to pick to, to talk specifically about the First World, First World War. 
In other years, the wars remembered have been, as is true of Remembrance Sunday more generally, other 20th century conflicts, with Peggy in particular giving voice to the memory of the Second World War, uh, while the struggles of contemporary ex-servicemen were the focus in 2010. The poppy appeal was also a recurrent theme, particularly around the turn of the 21st century. I haven't noticed it recently, um, but there used to be long discussions about um, volunteering for the poppy appeal and the existence of the uh, tin, uh, collection tin in the village shop um, in several years. So all these elements follow wider cultural patterns in the shifting emphases around the culture of commemoration throughout Britain over the past half quarter of a century. Commemorations of the First World War have never been static, but have always changed in response to the generational experience, contemporary culture, social, economic, and political concerns of the participants, which of course changes population changes. What interested me in particular is the extent to which Ambridge commemorations occupy a specifically religious space much of the time. Natural, national practice has become more secular, even commercial, as the British Legion in particular has sought to monetize memorial practice to support its charitable efforts through invented traditions such as the unveiling of the poppy campaign. These are three images from uh, just before the Lincoln Conference, the years before the Lincoln Conference. Um, so we've got the Spice Girls, we've got Strictly Come Dancing, which is deeply bought into the, the Poppy Appeal with its uh, annual uh, event um, and raising money for the British Legion. The Archers, by contrast, re has reasserted, if not annually, then regularly, the links between commemorative practice and the, the established religion and faith, which underpin the lives both of those who served in the First World War, um, if not in terms of their own practice, then in terms of their the familiarity with religion as part of their lived experience, and those who supported and remembered them in its immediate aftermath. In addition to the regular marking of Remembrance Sunday in 2014, the program as part of the wider BBC commemorative project included longer running storylines to mark the centenary of the outbreak of the uh, the war in August 1914, and this played into to the wider goals of the BBC as an organization. 2014 was an extremely busy year, even by Ambridge's standards, which may have affected the extent to which some of these storylines felt particularly contrived. Um, I considered in my original paper the example of Neil and Linda's January 20th discussion of the lives of the First World War website. Um, um, which was just being launched and the suggestion of the creation of a local version on the village website. It was an extremely awkward exchange and I suggested that this was reinforced by the nature of the stories that eventually Linda's research turns up, stories which reflected both the dominant narratives that the BBC's World War One at Home project was trying to bring out around home front workers and women in war and some of the common myths of wartime life that become part of the national narrative of our memory of the war. Thus Diana Chambers, great aunt, and you shouldn't, I don't see why anyone should remember or know any of these names. These just happen to be the ones that came up in the storylines. Diana Chambers, great aunt, not only worked at Felpersham Munitions Factory, but also played for their women's football team. While Robert comments that John Benjamin's Borsetshire Agricultural Workers Alliance lapel badge was of a type which became very popular once the White Feather campaign started 
to show you weren't shirking. Now, this is an interesting myth because while, white, uh, while such badges did absolutely have a function in identifying men undertaking reserved occupations, the fact that the white feather campaigns were of limited duration and concentrated almost exclusively in urban centers meant that for at least this listening historian, um, this assertion sounded something of a duff note. It, it fits in more with a wider uh, myth of the war than it does with a specific Ambridge experience. Similarly, Jim's claim that women's war work was what got them the vote owes more to dominant cultural myths of the war than current historical research, which for the past decade or so has been challenging the extent to which the war played a role in that. The forcible insertion of these stories into the narrative of Ambridge's past was, I argued, an example of the program functioning as an invented tradition rather than a lieu de memoir. So this was in stark contrast which the, with the commemorative storyline which I identified as being very much a lieu de memoir, in part because it focused on place and Ambridge as a place rather than people um, who populated that place. This was the use of the Your Country Calls poster. Um, as part of the Save campaign, which was a parallel storyline that year and a long-standing one um, at the Village Fate as the publicity for the Village Fate. Sorry, uh, Nicholas, you were waving, is there? Are you having a problem hearing me? Ah, sorry, excellent. Um, so this was one of three posters mentioned in the discussion uh, of the Fate Committee. Uh, and the best known of the posters mentioned is the Your Country Needs You uh, cam campaign with the image of Kitchener, uh, which Kenton at one point suggests in su superimposing David's face over Kitchener's um, to a certain amount of hilarity. Your Country's Call poster, however, which was equally popular during the war, resonates more deeply with the fake committee as a symbol of the historical memory of the war in Ambridge. It is a symbol of what we imagine Ambridge looking like. I've given an example of one of the illustrations um, uh, on the bottom right of the slide, um, as well as in Kenton's words, quote, what they, the soldiers of the Great War, were fighting for, end quote. And unlike the Kitchener image, the poster has direct resonances with the contemporary storyline. This is what the SAVE committee is trying to save. As Jill notes, the SAVE campaign is motivated by the same impulses as many of the men who enlisted. Quote, at heart, they were fighting to preserve a particular way of life, end quote. And this has very much uh, been evident in the historical scholarship, which demonstrates that among British troops, motivations for enlisting in 1914 were myriad, but many soldiers felt a duty to preserve their home, family, and way of life. While initial motivations could fall by the wayside in the face of war experience, for many soldiers, the protection of home and family remained a powerful motivating force to the end of the conflict, helping to justify sacrifice rather than encouraging interpretations of death as a tragic waste. The poster storyline, therefore, serves to unify contemporary concerns in Ambridge with a historic reality in ways that enable the program to function as a genuine site of historical memory. So, so much for my original paper. Following on from Fiona's format last week, I wanted to move on to what happened next. Um, as far as the arches commemorating the First World War, 
uh, is concerned, the answer is actually not very much. By the time I gave that paper, uh, the second wave of commemoration, it was designed in three waves. Um, the second wave of commemoration planned by the government and the BBC in 2016, focusing on the Battle of the Somme um, and its centenary had already occurred. Although that was little remarked in Ambridge, given the more pressing matters of the Helen and Rob storyline, which dominated that year. The third wave around the centenary of the armistice in 2018 did include a replaying episode on the village green with bells rung on armistice day, which also, as I said, happened to be Remembrance Sunday that year. There were, however, no storylines equivalent to the fate committee, equivalent to the attempt to start um, a village website uh, around the memory of the First World War, um, attempting to tie the village or its inhabitants more intimately into commemorative events. This detachment of the Archers from any program of national commemorations and the BBC's program more broadly uh, reflects, I think, a the wider successes and failures of the official programming. So while the uh, education and artistic elements of the program, these are some of the uh, educational outputs of the official program, and these are examples from the 1418 Now uh, commissions had and continued to have impact on uh, wider uh, culture in terms of uh, remembering and commemorating the war. The community and family-based research that was supposed to be the primary theme of national commemoration has had a more muted afterlife. Given Ambridge's lack of a local school, which has been discussed in other papers for this uh, community, and debates over the focus of Lower Loxley's art gallery in recent years, which are much more towards the avant-garde than commemorative practice, I think it's perhaps unsurprising that the commemoration of war across the centenary has not been a major talking point. The aspects that became the major talking point are not ones that are necessarily relevant to the Ambridge community as it exists at the moment. As for myself, having presented in Lincoln and subsequently publishing the paper in Custards, Culverts and Cakes, accompanied by Jim's very erudite commentary, for which I thank him, um, I went on the following year uh, in London to propose a project on creating a digital uh, war memorial based on English Heritage's uh, memorial mapping project. Um, unfortunately, that project fell victim to my personal circumstances. My mother died in uh, August 2018, and a lot of stuff uh, went out the window. However, Lincoln did mark a starting point for me to focus more specifically on the representation of war in popular culture. Um, and I have since published on the place of the First World War in other uh, less significant communities, such as Downton Abbey. Um, and I've also been invited to uh, publish on Peter Jackson's They Shall Not Go Old. Old. Um, more recently, and in light of um, Nicholas' comments about uh, what you should, shouldn't say to the Star Wars community, um, a PhD student um, and a colleague and I have started a podcast, Over the Lovely Podcast, uh, where the First World War meets popular culture. And our second episode, in fact, was the First World War in Star Wars. So we have had a bit of a discussion over canon in that sense. Um, I'm not sure we'll ever necessarily uh, be able to talk about the archers, um, but it's certainly from my experience of writing uh, my paper for uh, the Lincoln Conference that the podcast ultimately emerged. So I just want to conclude with some thoughts about how this sort of analysis fits 
in with the current crisis in light um, of some of the things that Nicola was mentioning right at the beginning. Uh, because the suspension of the program has left me with several questions. Um, so I'm just going to pull up my final slide. Firstly, one thing that the current retrospective format of the program means is that we haven't been able to hear how the village commemorated the 75th anniversary of VE Day. As with the First World War centenary, this was due to be a national moment with a range of official programming, including from the BBC, which was inventively recreated in, in, with social distancing in mind. But how would the village have commemorated this national event? Would the commemoration have been located in place, reconfirming the village's Ovia de Memoir, or focused on a person? Would we her, have heard from Peggy again? Uh, would that strategy have been more successful given the more deeply embedded ties that ca long-standing characters such as Peggy have with that conflict? Um, more difficult with a conflict further away uh, in time, such as the First World War. Secondly, where was the storyline of Robert's attempt to give Freddie his father's war medals going? Was it due to tie into some sort of VE Day commemorations? And where will it go now if it goes anywhere at all? Um, in light of the current redefinition of heroism as a quality of caregivers and key workers in the current crisis, as opposed to perhaps the more traditional definitions of heroism um, as associated with the military, the story has the potential to become a vehicle for interpreting the cultural trend towards comparing the current crisis with the war effort in the Second World War, um, which is one of those subjects that I and my colleagues have been discussing endlessly and will we'll eventually redirect our research towards, I suspect. So like all here, I eagerly anticipate the return of the contemporary program in the coming weeks to see how the Archers once again becomes a site of commemoration, not just for warfare, but for social crisis in general. Um, and as I say, watch Ambridge continue to function as a lieu de memoir uh, for so much of our national and international history. Thank you very much. Brilliant, thank you very much for that. That was fantastic. Oh, you're getting lots of rounds of applause there. And it is, it's so topical, isn't it, to what, how we remember, I mean, Gary was saying we can't even agree on what the episode that just happened, let alone actually then, you know, Fiona Gleed is also talking about these episodes being an opportunity to go back for years and to revisit that. And some of the themes I can remember word for word, others just escaped me completely. So that act of, of remembering is, is a really interesting one. But also thinking about, yeah, what is, what is the language that they're going to be using? The VE Day celebrations, if we'd heard it in Ambridge, could have been a conversation for that, you know, the topic of pandemic behaviour. Who goes out? and who doesn't, who maintains the distance and who doesn't, and that kind of commemoration. And a lot of that has been lost to us now. Any um, questions? Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm disturbing everybody by talking about um, dairy farmers hanging themselves. Um, what happened to so i understand that for personal reasons the virtual war, mem war memorial didn't happen can you say something about the role of virtual war memorials because i didn't really know much about them until i then was involved in the amiens um commemorations for my grandfather and they really are like um 
they really are you know we think that we've got a um you know we've got our online community the 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 online war memorials really do attract kind of massive footfall and huge numbers of people Can you say something about that yes so um i think there's still more work to be done on evaluating the long-term um impact of the local war memorials but what they they ended up being really very local and because there were so many of them in some ways um i think it became quite difficult to get them to interact um the ones i ended up getting involved with uh, by the nature of my work tend to be ones focused around hospitals which tend to have quite good records so they they were commemorating people who were uh being treated in the hospitals those who worked in the hospitals um volunteers and that uh carried over into the Red Cross's digitization of their First World War records around the voluntary aid detachments. Um, the, I, I think for local communities, there was one near me here in Yorkshire, uh, in Craven. Um, it, as you say, it attracted a lot of local interest. Some people got very, very involved and created some really quite, um, elaborate sounds a bit flippant but you know it's, it's really in-depth and um extensive uh research and then um uh displays and uh um and exhibitions out of it um a lot of these tended to be temporary and quite ephemeral um so the university of sussex is actually um has a project trying to collect um records of these uh smaller community activities the, while the government put money into initiating them there was no sort of attempt to capture them in any way so this has been entirely the initiative of the university of sussex um i think partly a spin-off of mass observation um so i don't know how you know that project is ongoing um, and will be evaluated eventually. Um, so hopefully there'll be a lot more that we can uh, look at and work with. There, there will be an archive of these projects in future. Um, but uh, the historian in me says it's too soon um, to, to really evaluate these properly. Um, mm -hmm. And because there wasn't an official project to capture uh, the, that output, that's a bit of a problem for us. Thank you. That was excellent. And I think the, the chat is extremely full of stuff. So I guess you should have a look at some of that. Sadly, yes, I've got 96 new messages, apparently. Yeah, it rooms fairly <laughs> widely. So, uh, yeah. Um, now, so I was trying to write the introduction to the next paper. Thanks very much, Jessica. To, um, and, um, and basically, I've decided, Bronwyn, I hate you. Um, because I've never heard your animal paper for obvious reasons. I, if people don't know, I lost five dogs in a six year period, all rescues and destroyed me. Um, all the way through this, what did you call it, Cara? Pandemic behaviors? Yeah. You could say something about pandemic behaviors. I quite like that as a sort of. Okay, yeah, no, I, of course I did, yes, uh, yes, I do remember that, yeah. Right. So, so <laughs> Citing Courage 2020, 
um, the pandemic behaviours, I'm, as you know, I'm kind of very tuned into sort of, um, you know, the sort of psychosocial kind of what's going on. But the whole time that the, the virus has been rampant, I've had um, my dad's sister has been very poorly and she's in that group that pre-existing medical conditions, the shielded, she had um, mesothelioma. And because we've been so worried about her, it was felt before the virus that she was coming to the end of her life. I just found myself so often just feeling so angry with the way that we were talking about our older people, particularly because, you know, my auntie Dorella, she died on Saturday. That's the, that's the sort of punchline. So we're going to have to have a virtual funeral on which I have consulted the great Abby Pattenden this week. Um, because, and also when we, you know, I, I hate, all of the memorialization of war i think it goes very gets very weird very quickly sorry jessica but the ve day stuff was so weird because at the same time as this bonkers red white and blue stuff that we do the v the sort of official narrative blah 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 blee 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 those exact same people are in our care homes dying in in large numbers and as i say my auntie died on saturday and how did we get here that having a pre-existing medical condition well you know life is a pre-existing medical condition and it's always fatal sexually transmitted and always fatal and um you know to hear them talked about as this, these disposable people you know because they're old or because they were already ill and the way you know we, we've just managed to shift our entire um our frame around older people from the elders you know to to this collateral damage against the virus and i um so anyway yeah bronwyn i hate you you always make me cry please give us a way to think about these things in this terrible context Okay, can you hear me now? Fab, thank you. I'm so sorry about that. Um, I don't do it deliberately, honestly. I, I really don't, Nicola. Um, let me crack on with this. Um, I'm just trying to share my screen. There you go. Uh, if I move everybody over here, I'm getting quite good at this stuff now. Um, she says. Okay. If I can get rid of this bit, that's it. Um, one of my theories, Nicola, was from um, when this all really beat, just as we were going, even before lockdown, was when they were talking about herd immu immunity. I, I was really quite convinced that there was somebody who was um, uh, Boris Johnson's main uh, guy. You'll know who that probably I'm talking about, the one that scuttles out running out of 10 Downing Street. And um, I just had this fantasy that this was a really good way of getting rid of all of their problems around how much social care costs. But that was just one of mine, um, put that out there. She set me off and I, I've not even got anything sad in this, I don't think. So today I'm looking at psychological wellness in retirement and how the archers represent what we know from the literature. 
I did deliver this paper in February uh, in Reading this year. And I just was thinking about this yesterday, how different the world is. I remember it being very cold in Reading and we were just a bit wary about maybe, you know, anybody sneezing, but that was about it. So we find ourselves in a very different world now. And much, much of the content that I've got in this may chime with our own experiences of lockdown. And I've been really interested thinking about this, about what we know about retirement, how that overlays maybe with what some people's experiences of lockdown may be. I'll leave you to judge. So for retirement, the Archers gives a wealth of examples of individuals who are productive and psychologically healthy in older life. And that's maybe what we're forgetting right now with, with what we've just been talking about with older people. Many of the characters in the Archers are still working, often running their own businesses in their 70s. Others are volunteering or being very involved in Ambridge life in ways that the literature tells us are healthy. Okay, so let's see if I can skip this on. Most people make financial preparations for retirement. Um, there was a reference around New Year to David and Ruth's retirement pot, for example. But the evidence indicates that psychological preparation is less likely. And it, that is something that I hear a lot of in my retirement workshops. Retirement is a major life transition, which is poorly understood and is something that many people in Ambridge just don't seem to do. Whilst retirement brings many benefits, it can also be unexpectedly challenging. Some phases of the process of retirement have been identified. And these are they. Forming the image of retirement and then identifying that time of retirement and finally that transition into retirement. For those of us who work, say, in public sectors, those phases are perhaps clearer than they might be for those in farming and associated rural industries. Farmers are notoriously um, are notorious for being unwilling, unable or perhaps refusing to retire. It's well recognised as a huge issue on family farms, where the next generation want to develop and take on the business in new directions, or perhaps adopt more modern methods. But the older family members just don't or, or won't step down and hand over the reins. Here, think about the difficulties that Brian and Adam have with each other's perspectives and the attitudes that they both hold towards farming. And then there's that rewilding stuff, let's move on. Many farmers continue to work later in their lives than other workers. Farming's a hazardous occupation, and as we age, we are less physically fit. We're really aware of that at the moment. With slower reaction times, reduced physical strength and cognitive function. Farming-related injuries occur more often among older farmers, and the injuries tend to be more severe. Assault by cattle is one of the top causes of injury among older farmers. And some of you will know where I'm going with this. An example here would have been Tony being attacked and significantly injured by Otto the bull in 2014. Mass retirement is a recent invention that didn't really come into being until after the Second World War. Therefore, not many generations have been through it. And the reality of retirement now is somewhat different for many than it was for those who retired not many years ago. And we've now got another layer of, of difference in the last couple of months or, or so. In the recent past, you retired when you were no longer physically fit to continue to work and it allowed you to stop and slow down prior to death. 
For more recent retirees, retirement has been different, especially for those who are baby boomers. Now people can hope to be financially secure and for retirement to be an opportunity for leisure-based experiences and perhaps personal development. Added to this is the increase in life expectancy in developed countries that has occurred at the same time. Many people can expect to have up to a third of their life in retirement, many being fitter and healthier for longer in retirement than their parents' generation. So how we're viewing the older generation at the moment is quite interesting. And this is Betty Bromwich from Cheltenham, which isn't far from Borsetshire, and I can probably just see it across from my windows over here. And this is her celebrating her 90th, her 90th birthday with a variety of, of challenges, including wing walking. And her motto is, wear out, don't rust out. So the fantasy and the reality. And here's perhaps think about some of the similarities that we might have with lockdown. In an old and unpublished study in the early 1960s, young people were interviewed about the transition from school to work. And one finding was their fantasies about what that transition would be like. So just let's think about it now. Remember back, I'm sure you can do this very easily, to when you were about to leave education. That thrilling transition into, into work. Some of you, by the sounds of it, have never ever left education, but just go with me. Maybe you're excited by your thoughts of freedom, of no one telling you what to do, of having money, of making choices, of being your own person, and then you started work, and what happened? It probably didn't quite live up to the fantasy. Well, Goodwin and O'Connor in 2014 returned to some of those very same participants from the 1960s study, and they talked to them there about their fantasies about retirement. And just as we can have those fantasies about school to work and growing up, we can have fantasies and unrealistic expectations of, of what retirement will be like. Interestingly, before March this year, many of us would have said, if only I could just have time at home, away from people and commuting and the world in general. For some people, the changes brought by lockdown have been fine. But for many of us, our fantasies of that time out have really not lived up to the reality. One of my colleagues, bless him, who retired in November, um, he's beside himself because he said that um, since he retired in November, it then rained and then it just started, the weather started to get better and they've cancelled his uh, cricket season, the rugby finished early and this is not the retirement that he'd worked so hard for. He's a social worker. In retirement, the move from a work role may bring multiple changes and a variety of losses such as these. Again, match these with what's happening in lockdown. I'm just going to move this over a bit so I can see it. Okay. So these losses. In the Archers, examples of these were not easy to come by. However, there was one person that consistently for me demonstrated these, and that was Christine Barford. The loss of role, Christine was a capable, strong woman who owned and ran the stables before a number of difficult events, most of them to do with Clive Horobin. And after the death of her husband, George, she had to sell the business, which Shula bought, and things have never been quite the same again for Christine. People do less well psychologically in retirement if it's enforced upon them, much like lockdown, rather than it being their choice. 
Another factor is if retirement is seen as a loss when people have high status, roles or jobs that give high satisfaction. It can be harder. Maybe think about Brian here and NHS colleagues often say to me, I'm a nurse. Who will I be when I retire? Well, we just bring them back from retirement, don't we? But when retirement is seen as a reward after poor or negative experiences and low job satisfaction, psychological health can be improved. This was why I was really interested in hearing whether Neil was going to retire following, uh, not so recent now, but that restructuring that they did at the pig unit. Back to Christine, for many years, um, she hasn't really had defined activities that come across as purposeful. There was a loss of income. She became worried about her finances. She got scammed and lost her savings. A real issue for older people and those who were retired with savings. And it also nearly happened to Peggy. Loss of social contact. Christine again, her embarrassment at losing her money in the scam plus her physical problems causing her to be fearful about being mobile had an impact on her ability to socialise. Added to this, her contact with her adopted son Peter is infrequent. And that newcomer to Ambridge, Joy, also illustrates some of the difficulties for those who retire and find that their families are too busy and don't want to maybe be that involved with them over, even over Christmas. Moving to a new area, as Joy did, can be seen as making a new start in, a re in retirement in a rural idyll, but this can backfire and increase social isolation. And I'd like to add just another one, the expectations of others. Um, often there's an expectation for older generations when they retire for the provision of free childcare for grandchildren, which might be fine if that's really what you want to do um, and as you retire. Some people have been stopped doing that now, they're not able to or have been forced into it. But it isn't for everyone and at least not all of the time. One of my colleagues told her family prior to retirement, I love my grandchildren dearly, but please don't expect me to be looking after them for you. Older relatives, including parents, can have expectations too, that can be at odds with what the retiree wants and needs. I hear this a lot in workshops. Family members and friends expect the person retiring to automatically be more available to them. Partners may have varying expectations if they retire together or if one retires before the other. Yet few couples discuss this explicitly and assumptions are made. I wonder how many couples are not discussing what their expectations are of each other in lockdown at the moment. My advice is to have forthright conversations with friends and family about yours and their expectations well in, the, in advance of retirement, as it's more difficult to put things right once you're into it. Most research indicates that a graduated retirement is psychologically best, or that what's known as bridging, where someone perhaps cuts down one day or two days a week in preparation for retirement, or returns to the workforce part-time once retired. Of course, with lockdown, that just for a lot of people didn't happen. And now I want to spoil your Saturday. We need to talk briefly about alcohol and its impact on wellness in retirement. You're not going to like this, are you? And um, also in lockdown. So these, um, in 2015, a team of academics undertook the largest ever survey of drinking behaviour uh, amongst the over 50s in Britain. And of those who said they were drinking more now in the past, the reasons given were retirement, bereavement, loss of sense of purpose, fewer opportunities to socialise, 
and changes in fin finances. So the psychological challenges of retirement can drive us to drink. And it's interesting when we think about now, about the COVID situation, and that alcohol purchases have gone up hugely. So what can help us in psychologically, stay psychologically healthy in any stage of life, and including lockdown? You'll have seen some of these. Um, there's a whole range of things. Um, but these four I'm particularly interested in. These come from um, what we'd use in cognitive behaviour therapy is something known as behavioural activation. So what we'd ask people to do is to think about how often they do these four things during their day and during their week and then actually think about adding some more in. Now start to think about retirement and lockdown. Um, so what this tells us is the, these things, if we can increase them and keep them at a good level, they are really useful in combating anxiety and depression, especially. So there's some really good evidence for this. So what this tells us is we need to do more than the ad hoc dip in the Grey Gables swimming pool, should it be open. These activities need to be regular, scheduled and meaningful, as well as achievable to the individual. Therefore, I suggest that if we do these in retirement, we can make it successful and psychologically healthy. I looked at uh, the ages of some of the characters in the archers. Uh, so this really fits with, with perhaps what we were talking about. Look at these ages. They may be slightly out because my, um, uh, my, I'm slightly dyslexic. Slightly, I'm quite dyslexic. So I may be just slightly out on some of the ages, but it'll only be by a year. So... When we think about what many of these are doing, those four activities that I outlined, a good example is dear old Joe Grundy, just shy of 100 before he died. He was social, he had his family around him, plus his animals gave him a great deal of pleasure and provided structure to his day. He'd hang out at the bull and get people to buy him drinks, perhaps getting a sense of achievement when he managed to do so. Jill Archer at 89, she's the centre of her family at Brookfield. She has lots of interests, including bees, hens and flapjacks, and is often involved in all sorts of village activities, as well as having that new man in her life. And then there's Lillian Bellamy. Now, I find this really difficult to believe that Lillian is 70, 71. She still works. She's running her own businesses, allegedly, and she's dispensing good ideas at the bull. And she definitely socialises. She still rides horses. Um, even if they were somewhat obese until recently. So Lillian has exercise and I expect, I, or I suspect she has some healthy sexual exercise too. So maybe this has the pleasure thing going on there. Actually thinking about it, what we know about sex, it can give us, if we're lucky, exercise, some socialising, some pleasure, and if you're really lucky, a sense of achievement. So what's not to like so if you're in lockdown ladies and gentle people you know what to do to get schedule those four things into your diary okay so finally preparing for retirement no far matter how far away that might seem or how close at the moment a bit like the Malvern Hills here scene which can be seen in fine weather from Lakey Hill I'd recommend practicing for retirement don't put off things you want to do now or perhaps should do now until retirement um, and if you can do them under lockdown with some social distancing because we because how will we know 
that we'll like our retirement plans and how they'll fit into our lives if we don't try them out now. So if you want to do bell ringing at St Stephen's or play golf at Ambridge Golf Course, now it's just sort of being opened. Again, try it. If you waited until you retire, it would be a shame to find out that you didn't like some of these ideas and activities and also that you discover that the golf club is full of Martin Gibson and his cronies. So perhaps as, as Jim would say, carpe diem, or as Tracy Horobin might say, is that something to do with catching fish? Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Bronwyn. That was, as ever, absolutely brilliant. Thank um, you. And yeah, lots of rounds of applause there for everybody. I hope you can see those on your screen as well. Oh, and a huge amount of chatter um going on in the chat function here too um and a lot of talk about drink and jill having sex unfortunately <laughs> That's, i'm gonna have to have a drink after this now because of that <laughs> i have been thinking though i think you're right not to say that um retirement is like a lockdown necessarily but going into this period uh, so quickly as we did, I think for some characters in Ambridge are going to find that very challenging. We had a little bit of a taste with that with Linda, of course, with her coming back from home and not having the agency that she yeah. normally had and trying to find her voice literally and her power in different ways. And then others, I can, you know, there's a little bit of sort of a jokingness about um, Susan in the shop and, the, you know, the power that you give her with, you know, rationing out the loo roll and that kind of thing. But other people, you know, stepping into a bit more of a mastery skill. And I wondered if you've got any thoughts on what some of the characters might be doing at the moment, how they might be reacting to what's going on. Well, I, I, I was I was following some of the farming stuff that in the in the chat earlier on, and um, you know, a, a friend of mine who's up in Cumbria, I haven't spoken to her for a little while, and she's saying, well, you know, everybody the, the sheep farmers up there say, well, they socially isolate, whereas we were going to because they're they're lambing. So I guess it depends on what you know. Farming is so broad, and um, rural areas are so broad. I mean, where I am at the moment, one of the problems is the influx of people. Mm -hmm. and i know that's for other places so it's it's about how do you maintain that rural um community and the community is so important in the archers mm. i don't know how they go i don't know how they're going to do that and i'm just thinking about i can't think of a healthcare worker apart from the physio guy um helen's physio Me. yeah there's 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 no health workers um, and what I've seen is been really interesting for me as somebody who retired from the health service and has gone back on a, on a project is most of my friends and people who are very dear to me as you know, I have to leave them alone because they're, they're busy doing all sorts of stuff. Mm. They're flat out. And, mm. and it's, there's, there's such a disparity between those of us that aren't doing very much mm. and, other, and other people, and other people are just, people are just, had time to think about what lockdown means mm. absolutely fascinating those are my perspectives and and it though some of that does fit with retirement because when you retire especially if you retire early you may find that all your friends are still doing stuff they're not around for you so the, the lockdown stuff does have some real echoes with what we know about retirement i'll shut up now what I wonder about is um, if actually it's like a lot of things. It's like 
separation of work life in general I mean this has demonstrated that I mean I'm working as hard if not harder than I normally do I just don't have to travel now the blend thing again so if you follow the argument that it, obviously this is speaking from a position of extreme privilege so just go with that you know portfolio careers you can do the nice bits if they pay you like um sarah playfair was saying um you can do the um enough things to kind of cover treats if you're lucky enough to have laid down enough capital earlier in your life to not have to worry or you live in an area where housing is incredibly cheap i just think it's um that this period because of its effect on work life and travel and all that kind of stuff it's having a really disruptive effect in terms of how we conceptualize and then plan for the world of work so just in the same way that people are now saying well this is mad that you do your you have your degree over three years and then you're qualified enough to kind of go and that's it stop learning get working you know all these things are just going to be bled through life stages and courses in a way that we haven't a language for and we haven't um uh planned for you know so the so if you think you know sort of industrial home workplace modes of production organized that way around you know and again more work on how that's a sort of male subject and all the rest of it a family wage for one person it's just all this stuff has just become extremely attenuated i think in terms of the material basis of one's life the value proposition that one can put together around one's skills and i think it's going to be there's going to be more phases and, and, and not to mention god forfend all that free labor domestic labor childcare, etc etc there's nothing there's nothing that's going to be as as fixed so this is your schooling this is your working this is your retirement it's just going to bleed together a lot more i don't know what anyone else thinks about any of that i think that's a really it's a really good point and what we know is some of the difficulties with retirement is is that the, the, it is a relatively new thing how we do this um and you know i've been banging on for years about prepare for retirement and then but how could none of us were able to prepare for lockdown? There was no preparation. No, I remember my got my father-in-law going to a seminar at Brooks. He was a French academic, and they literally it was a mixture between have you thought about renting out your spare room and could you do a bit of proofreading on the side and all this kind of stuff. And he was slightly mind blown because he just hadn't. And again, back to my mother-in-law's cushion, twice the husband on half the money. I mean that is that's retirement for most professional women you're in your house twice as much as you were and you're living on half the money that you've had but if we think you're right there sort of thinking about the lillians of the world and she's i mean she, she does a lot for a woman of her age and gary remarked in the chat as well that the the characters in the arch is actually of, of different ages have an amazing level of resilience um, and I was wondering too, also with, with lockdown, a lot of those disappeared long-term medical conditions that we've talked about before, will they be brought back in as a plot device? And people in the chat have also been saying about um, 
the lack of healthcare workers as characters, and you said as well, the only one that you can think of one there is Lee. And again, is that an opportunity for new characters to come back, as the nation actually probably wants to hear and recognise those voices, perhaps more? Mm. I, I don't know if anybody remembers when, um, who was it who lost an eye? Um, it, oh, Mike. they left um, a yeah, I was working as a community mental health nurse in the, in the Cotswolds then. And uh, he actually had, because he had quite a, a good uh, dose of depression after that, mm-hmm. understandably. And he actually had a CPM, but it was, I thought, yes, this, this, is, this is great. Mm-hmm. I was hoping the CPM, the community psychiatric nurse, was going to stay in Ambridge. But they, they just sort of were mentioned and drifted off. And I just thought, what a waste. What a fan- fantastic thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's the thing is that we've talked about this several times on the on the zooms that the ways in which the public sector appear by virtue of not being political, I think it's definitely underserved as a community um, in terms of the and as I said last week I think it was those, those left hand of the state activities that keep the show on the road in in much of the um, in 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 all communities. And fair enough, notwithstanding austerity, there are still many functions that don't pop up very often. And partly because, you know, what's what's dramatic about, um, you know, having your midwife round or having a social worker round or what the rest of it. Oh, sorry, um, Helen Burroughs can throw things at me now. But in some ways, it's it's um, it is underserved by the public service, full stop, you know. And if you think of um, Turner and Beige's paper about why is there no primary school? Um, actually that's true they had just at the point of lockdown that's a really good point Christine Naramore speaking sense as usual let's bring back that doctor that uh, then was so uh, emasculating about the one night stand that she'd had with um, Ben Archer and there's also people have been mentioning um, Alan's daughter the midwife as well yeah. so we're going to return people coming you know during lockdown going back to their family home is that a way that they'll bring in some of these public sector key workers into the storyline as well and will the I mean, girls be the the um, enemies of this as a kind of like the second homeowners you know yeah. sitting between one place and another are they going to be utilized for that kind of storyline <laughs> yeah <laughs> i was thinking as well when you were talking about exercise uh Bronwyn, um and I was wondering with these, you know, because we, we get the new episodes from the 25th of, of May. And I was expecting in that perhaps a lot of texting and Zooming and things like this. But of course, maybe the Archers gang will all still be walking around everybody's houses to deliver messages because that will be their daily exercise. <laughs> we'll still get them just, you know, just at the end of the game sort of thing rather than actually finally they've got a smartphone between them. <laughs> That's right. You know, lockdown has given us that. I mean, it, that for I don't see so many older people, perhaps, and, and um, my neighbours around me here um, are, are not doing as much walking anywhere much as, as me. But I'm seeing a whole load of people um, who I've never seen on my walks before, and and they're now. You know, if lockdown's long enough, we'll get this as a habit to plug it in once or twice a day. You know, so. Um, I think that's that. Maybe we've, on the one hand, we've got 
got the alcohol going up, but we've also got the, the, um, uh, the exercise going in and people using free exercise, realizing that this stuff is free and mm. at this time of year as well, it's been fantastic mm. for those of us that can access somewhere that's, that's nice to walk. Mm. There's places I wouldn't want to, um, you know, and it does, again, it is that, you know, that privileged where, where you are and what you can do. So I'm in that um, King's College study about mental health attitudes within lockdown and they reported last week that only 19% of people had said that their alcohol consumption went up, which I just thought was a fat lie because I mean, I really don't, don't, just when, they, when they say how many units do you drink a week, they just automatically double what you say. So <laughs> we just double that stat straight away. <laughs> I have to say, I have to say uh, anecdotally that we had our um, our uh, glass recycling yesterday and I was working uh, on my laptop and I heard it go for about three streets there was just so many glass bottles kind of going into the van <laughs> social desirability bias says Tim Versalotti yeah. like the interesting point there about the laurels as well that, that Deborah made and I wondered about this because that's you know, there's a care home in Anchorage, so there's a right potential there for a storyline. Uh, but will that be too much of a political sort of hot potato for the BBC to really utilise? And when we come back to it, because, we, you know, before they changed the repeat episode, people were beginning, I think, to get a little bit annoyed about, like, they're in a bubble now, now it's just got really weird. Mm. They have to mention things. So when they come back, Again, if they don't mention something with the laws in some shape or form, is that going to be, again, really jarring now to us so many weeks into this situation? But I think that in and of itself, it's back to the politics of the public sector, isn't it? Like, the, like obviously, ha the level of public sector, the payment, paying for it and all the rest of it is political, but it's politicised to its fingertips at the moment. I mean, it's really... Um, I, I'd not, I've never seen anything like it, the sort of government uh, line and then the kind of reporting and all the rest of it, it and, you know, the difference between, you know, um, what they say on the, pe on the podium about what's going on and what people know to be going on and feel going on. I think this is very, it's very dangerous territory for Ambridge because there's a politics, there's a political economy around all of that. But it's yeah, much yeah. more political than than is comfortable, I think, and that's going to be hard to portray. I'm getting um, mindful of time now, so if there's any last points to be made, but, let's let's go to that. But Matt Matt Hancock has thrown a protective shield around the laurels. I love that. That is a quote I shall take with me from today. Thank you, Jim and Kate. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Personally, my thoughts are with Ed and Emma in a static caravan with teens and preteens at this time. Good God, <laughs> my my yeah, my thoughts and prayers are with them at this difficult time. Except well, I think that's and that's been very clear. I mean, you know, all our interest over the years in the Ambridge Ferry and housing. Gosh, housing is so different if you and your house are have no out. I mean. I was just, just talking to a friend of mine this morning who lives in a big house, but she has four fully formed personalities in every room at all times. And suddenly what had felt like a very 
sort of well-appointed home in the good times when they were all out for nearly all the time. It was feeling to her like a, like it was pushing in on her, whereas some other people, um, you know, it, it isn't the same at all. Like a, a flat can feel, you know, you can you can be bounded in a nutshell and consider yourself a king of infinite space if it were not that you have bad dreams. Um, and back to the earlier bits of the chat. Just by the way, the first one was Dire Straits, the second one was Douglas Adams, and the third was the Iliad, and that was um, that was Shakespeare. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you very much, everybody. It's been it has been fantastic conversation today. A really interesting play on the memory, but bringing it totally into where we are in our current situation with our listening, with our lives outside of the arches, such as that exists. Um, it's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Jessica and Bronwyn, for some great papers. Thank you all for some, as ever, inspired, insightful and hilarious chat with us. Um, and it's been lovely to see all of your lovely faces again. Thank you very much. Oh, I've got, I've got news. Um, um, so you, people that are going to be in the class book will have heard from Nell this week. But also, um, I've got, I got a delivery yesterday, which I'm really excited about. So hang on one second and I'll show you. So I have immortalized the, um, the logo that we've got on the Facebook group for these sessions. And if you've presented, you'll get one of these now. I get two. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one for each hand, full of wine. So actually, there is a second one because it's got the hand. <laughs> Not that I'm greedy or nothing. <laughs> so I was going to say, when we first asked for contributions, we filled up the spreadsheet until June. But now that we've been getting, oh no, that's the same one. Hang on. If you are having interesting thoughts for papers that you would like to repeat, look at that, look at that for a beauty. If you're having interesting thoughts, then, and you would like a mug, you can apply, if the lockdown's gonna go on until we're eating bloody mince pies, do put something in by email. We'd love to hear, you know, you know we're very uh, open community, so anything that is, Anyone can do introverts and extroverts in the arches and in lockdown, Steph. Sounds like you've got a paper there. So yeah, anything that you would like, just pop in, pop an email in and we'll, because we need more material to take us up to when we all get out of our houses. Because I'd just like to ask that if anybody, um, I mean, we still, we basically, it's, there's a hard core of 50 that we see every week and then some people dip in and out. But I must say, I'm really enjoying having this space to go to on a Saturday morning and I don't want to end. So, you know, that's just a call for ideas. I mean, you could also develop something that you're not sure about. Let's face it, this is a very friendly space. So let's, um, let's, have, some, let's have some new ideas. Great, thank you very much. I think on that, we'll say goodbye. So I'll, I'll mute us all and we'll get that lovely chorus of goodbyes. See you all next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 B